Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Welcome to Making Data Simple. I appreciate everybody listening. We recently just passed 500,000 downloads in less than a year and a half. That's because of you all podcasters, and I appreciate that. Give us feedback on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. I greatly appreciate it. Let us know what we're doing right. Let us know what guests that you might prefer or that you'd suggest. We'll certainly take advantage of that. The guest I have today, I've been trying to get on for a long time. I previously held the responsibility of DB2Z development. I've always been a data guy, but I got the pleasure of working with Z mainframe, and that took it up a notch. The gentleman here today is Ross Mori. He's the general manager of IBM Z and Linux One. He is a seasoned veteran. Ross has expertise in strategy, technology, engineering, marketing, sales. I think he's held positions in every one of those domains. I know that he's lived in Paris uh, for IBM and as he started the client server computing unit in Europe for Mideast and Africa. I know he's been a VP of development for IBM Systems Group. GM of IBM's Power Systems Division. Ross, is there anything that you've not done? Hey, Al, thanks for having me on here. Uh, when it comes to Systems Group, you know, the, the hardware business for IBM, I've done pretty much every role. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a long, uh, multiple decades, uh, but I'm still having fun. So I'm just bringing all that experience to bear in my current role in, as the head of Z. We're recording during the COVID crisis and I'm healthy. I hope you're healthy. You staying at home? Yes, I'm at home. This is day 25. Myself. You're counting. Oh, I have to. My son, my daughter, daughter-in-law and wife are, are all holed up in upstate New York. We only leave if we have to go get food. Yeah, we're, we're getting through it. I, I have to say, I think I'm the biggest baby here. I, I'm the one that's handling it the worst because I really don't like to be cooped up. I like to travel and I like to meet people and shake hands, something I probably won't be able to do again, things like that. So we're all coping and uh, we're healthy. Thanks for asking, Al. Now, have you broken the rules any? Tell me the truth. No, I really haven't. We've been pretty good. The other people that are, we're up at our lake house and the other people that are up here have all kind of escaped wherever they were living and come to live here. And we didn't even socialize with any of them. We tend to go out by a campfire maybe at night and you know stay socially distant, but at least we can maybe have a drink together, enjoy a fire, listen to some music, et cetera. But we've been pretty darn good. Yeah, I got to tell you, selfishly, I get to be with my kids, usually at university and so I get to see them every day. I don't know if they're as happy as I am, but they're killing my network, by the way. I keep telling myself I should learn to enjoy this and be, live in the present a little bit because I don't know when the next time I'm going to have everybody at home eating dinner together on a regular basis. You know, look, I'm very empathetic to all the folks that are that have you know serious challenges with it. But while I'm cooped up at home, I tell myself to live in the present and try to enjoy it with my kids. Yeah, I hear you. I, I enjoy being with my kids. Normally, we would see them maybe once a month, maybe twice a month. And so it's been great here. And they've been super about it. It's funny you mentioned bandwidth. My first day up here, I called Spectrum and said, I need a new plan because I know having three millennials in the house was going to eat the current bandwidth alive. I, you know what? I'm looking for a new router at the very moment. I got it on my list to do. Anyway, talk to your experience in your own words, if you would, and, and highlight the areas that you feel have, have been the most 
profound in your journey with IBM? I went to Marist College and um, my third week at Marist, I got a job in the computer center as an operator and an application programmer because you kind of had to be a jack of all trades. And I actually worked on my first mainframe when I was a sophomore. And so that started started my intrigue with these large high-end computers. And so that job in the, in the computer center at college led to an IBM co-op job. So I actually worked for IBM for like two and a half years prior to graduating. And when I graduated from college and joined IBM, I just thought IBM was the biggest sandbox in the world and I wanted to go play. And I wanted to write operating system uh, code in assembly language. So that was my... My career goal, day one, write operating system code in assembly language. So I met my career goal the first day in, in permanent in IBM. And I have to say it's been a, a wild journey since then. After a while, I had done everything I could in the area I was. I was in MVS at the time it was called, called ZOS today. After about seven years of doing all different technical jobs, I went into management. The real thrill for me uh, was just that I got to work um, on bigger and bigger uh, computing problems, if you would, that we had to solve for our largest clients, the banks and you know the airline uh, travel uh, industry and the big insurance companies. And I just love tackling those big, big problems. And of course, they all come with some type of database. Uh, you know, DB2, uh, I think, being the clear winner when it comes to mainframes. But there's all yes. kinds of data data types and data storage out there. But the coolest things in my career were just really a couple. Going to Paris for two and a half years, bringing my young family. My daughter was born in Paris. That was a real eye-opener for me. I had three different jobs over there in two and a half years. And when I was the head of marketing for Software Group, that really gave me a much broader perspective on business and clients. Uh, and when I came back from Paris, I was Lou Gerstner's assistant. So again, that was a big eye-opener, uh, having to wake up every morning and go down and, and be with Lou and wondering what the day would bring. Uh, some days were very boring when he wasn't around and some days were as exciting as ever. He would just come into your office and shout out a few uh, commands in a few sentences and leave and you had to figure out what he meant and and, uh, and help the chairman do his job. After that, you know, I went through a couple cool stages. Um, you know, I was one of the first people in, in IBM to be involved with Linux and open source. And I was uh, employee one when IBM started. It's true to invest in Linux. And I, I hired the head of the Linux Technology Center. I helped I was one of the founding members, uh, IBM was, and I was the chairman of what is now the Linux Foundation, where Linus Torvalds and all the other great open source projects that are under the Linux Foundation today exist. So that was really cool, being able to work with Linus, work with open source, and really learn that new world and see the see the advantages it was bringing and also the threat and opportunity that it presented there. And I'd say you know, I had a number of good really cool jobs. Uh, running the power business when it was at kind of at the height of the Unix wars was really a thrill because it was really a knife fight with Sun and with HPUX. You know, I was really proud uh, to, uh, I ran that business for four and a half years and that's where we really turned ourselves into that leading position in, in the Unix market and past 50% market share and kind of the rest is history there. And now I'm back to where I started. I'm back in the mainframe business. It's kind of a 40-year journey to come back home in Poughkeepsie. My current office, if I were there, is about 100 yards from my first office <laughs> in IBM. The people that walk the halls, well, some of them were there when I joined. Most, most of them are new. It's really cool. Poughkeepsie is an interesting place. It's a uh, more than a third millennials today, I'd say in 
two to three more years, it'll be two thirds millennials. We're hiring like mad. And there's a whole great crop of uh, young professionals there from all over the world. And it's really kind of a vibrant, exciting place to see it uh, rejuvenated again with all the with all this young talent that's going to take this wonderful system known as the mainframe on into the future for decades to come. You've been at IBM your whole career, end to end. You know, I thought about leaving. You know, we all get recruited, and I looked at different roles from privately held companies to publicly held companies, CEO roles, other roles. And you know, it just came down to, I just love the people of IBM. The people of IBM are what fascinate me. They're inspiring, they're innovative, they're dedicated. You know, they're working on whatever their current job is, but there's always a higher purpose that IBM has, helping make the world a better place. And again, solving the toughest problems in computer science always intrigued me. So while I was tempted a few times to interview, and I, I always kept coming back to say, this is the best place for me. I was about to ask you why IBM, but I think you took care of that. So <laughs> how many CEOs have you been through? You know, I didn't even know what CEOs were when I first joined, to be honest. And just one quick side story. I was an intern in a co-op I mentioned, and uh, one day my, the director and his whole team had to go to an all-hands meeting, and they asked me if I'd man the phones. And I got a call, so I answered the phone. Just tell them it's John Opal. Can I get your number? I don't. Does he know who you are? And I don't know if you know who John Opal was, but he was the president of the IBM company at that time. So I'm talking to John and didn't know who he was. So pretty naive back in the old days. So I don't know how many CEOs it was, but I've been able to work closely with Lou and you know from Lou on. Most recently, Ginny and now Arvind. Really, they're very different people. The, the different CEOs of IBM, Arvind now being the newest, but they all bring a special purpose to the job, which is that, again, IBM is here, of course, to support our enterprise customer, but we're also here to drive innovation that matters for the world. That was some of the inspiration I got from all of them, even though they weren't technologists until Arvind, he's a technologist, they all knew that there was this special thing that IBM had and IBMers have. And, and again, back to why I'm still here. I'm especially excited about Arvind. He has been an executive sponsor for me, mentored me. He's the reason I'm a, a VP today. I think the interesting thing, what he brings, and you already said it, was he's a technologist. He's got extreme technical depth. He's also got a strong operational acumen, strong instincts. And I was touting the other day that, you know, I, I know him pretty intimately, but everybody I talk to has the same kind of experience. So I guess what I'm saying is I think he has a unique ability to make everybody feel like they have a purpose and they have a voice and he's listening. I think on a personal scale. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I certainly feel that way. Yeah, it's really interesting with Arvin. He's always been someone that listens. And, and lots of times when uh, people get to higher levels, sometimes they kind of, they don't listen as much. They're they're driven. They kind of have a plan in their mind and they don't. It's just a fact. In my, that's the, my perception. But for Arvin, he always listens and he's thoughtful in his responses. He's really quick and smart, as we all know. He's deep in computer science, he's deep in technology, he's deep in business models. And that is one of the things that really excites me that we're not gonna have to spend a long time explaining new technologies and new ideas to him. And he's gonna help us, I'm positive, figure out which ones are the best ones to bring to market and bring them to market fast. I've already had that discussion with him and that's one of the things that excites me, Al. One thing he told me that has always stuck with me is he said, look, you got five minutes to get your point across. Maybe not even that, maybe two right. and a half minutes, then you lose your audience. 
and damned if he didn't hold me that. <laughs> every time that I, I gave him a pitch, I'd still I'd be on like maybe slide one, slide two. He'd be done reading the slides. And I'd be asking me questions on something on 23. And I'm like, what? You have to be on your game. There's no question about it. Yeah, that's funny. I've had the exact same experiences with him and, and learned early just, you know, let's get to the point. So he's fast. <laughs> so I got to ask you one question because you got a unique experience having worked with Lou and having worked with Jenny. What is one thing you've learned from each of those CEOs? From Lou, it was clearly I learned that communication is key, especially you, you need to know who your audience is. You need to know what they're expecting from you and you have to have thought about a purpose. So be prepared. And I watch Lou prepare for one-on-ones, one on a few, one on a hundred, one on a thousand, one on 10,000, whether it was broadcast, live, be a great communicator and be prepared. I learned from Lou. From Sam, I learned about the need to really understand the business aspect of your business that while I have a technical background, if I'm going to be a vice president, I'm going to be a general manager, you better know what your ledger looks like. You better know the dynamics of it. And Sam was great, you know, again, at business and thinking through things. And that's what I learned from him. Ginny taught me how to really have relationships with clients and why you want to have a relationship with clients and it's and how important it is not it is to IBM how important it is to that client's business she opened up my eyes in a few ways just about how deeply she understands and has relationships with clients and you know in good times and bad those bad times those uh, relationships are important most of these leaders are willing to do work that others aren't willing to do they get it right thank you for that let's jump into uh, z your favorite subject now I've had Priya Doty on, you know Priya well. Yes. Priya was the vice president of product marketing. I've had Namik, Namik mm -hmm. Hurl for DB2Z. And I'm gonna ask you the similar question that I asked them. Uh, the facts still remain the same. Two thirds of all banks in the world run on DB2 for Z. 100% uh, of global fortune, 100 banking and financial services are on DB2Z. I'm giving the DB2 thing because that's yeah. what I know. 21 of 25 insurance companies, 90% of credit card companies, 71% of global fortune 500 companies. And then uh, that's today, yet we still get this thing sometimes, hey, this is a legacy technology. For one, I wanna know when legacy became such a bad thing. And I'm throwing you a softball here, but why mainframe? And what do you see is the best thing about mainframe today? Because what I've been pitching is it's the most modern platform out there. Let me just take the legacy uh, question on right now, because I do hear it all the time. Legacy really refers to code, application code that may have been written two decades, three decades, four decades, five decades ago, and still runs. Now there's no systems, no architecture in the world that has backward and forward compatibility with applications the way the mainframe does. And we do that on purpose. We, it's called investment protection. If a bank invests $100 million in a set of applications, we're gonna protect that investment for them. But the thing that's legacy is when sometimes when clients don't modernize their applications, whether they're written in COBOL or Java or whatever, anything that's just left to languish and not touched over time is probably not going to be as efficient or as effective as they would want it if they were keeping it up to date. So again, when people say legacy to me, I just say, look, that's your applications and what are you going to do about it? How can we help you? Because 
the technology, again, the software and hardware technology that's on the mainframe is world-class. And in the reason, you know, banks and credit card companies, insurers, airline reservation systems, et cetera, really thrive on the mainframe is because of its unique IO subsystem, its speed, its performance, its reliability, but also its security. You know, we've invested in security for decades and decades, and we are still investing. And we're always looking out over the horizon about what's coming next and investing ahead of the curve when it comes to security for our clients. So to me, you know, if you want to write blockchain code in Go and have it run in the most secure environment in the world, that would be our Linux on Z container technology. And it's available today. It's available today on premises and it's available today in the IBM cloud. Yes, we actually surface mainframe services in the IBM cloud. So if you're on the IBM cloud, it's just a cloud service to you, but underlying it, there's actually mainframes running and therefore your code, whether it's the code you've written, whether it's open source, other open source code that you may have, it all inherits the speed, the performance, the reliability and the security of the mainframe. So. You know, I love peeling the covers back. I really love now with Red Hat and being part of IBM and with OpenShift and Ansible and having the mainframe be a clear player in that world. It's really exciting for me. Specifically before I move on, and you may have said this or inherent to some of your comments, but as a restate, what does the mainframe do that no one else can do? It can run transactions and the database of record at speeds and performance security and integrity of transactions like nothing else can. Quick side note is I've never talked to so many startups, specifically fintechs and health techs in my entire life as I have in the last year. And it's because fintechs, especially with cryptocurrency and digital assets, have come to realize that they're writing their code in, on Linux, right? They're based on open source stacks, etc. But it has to have that same security as banking security. And this is the way they get it. So the best thing about the mainframe, performance, robustness, workload size, and the integrity of your data, the integrity of your transactions. You do still seem very excited. Well, I got to tell you, I wouldn't be here if I wasn't. I, I love working with our fellows and distinguished engineers and senior technical staff members on the latest technologies and helping to figure out you know, what we're going to fit into the portfolio and what comes in the next generation and things like that. What's the biggest myth on Z? Believe it or not, is that it's expensive. I, now, again, if you look at total cost of ownership, and again, the biggest banks of the world know how to crunch numbers. These are not people that you can like somehow fool with some smoke and mirrors. I don't know. When it comes to the cost per transaction and the total cost of ownership, so the data center, the people, the electricity, the software, the hardware, all in, right? When you take that all into account, the mainframe is actually the least expensive platform to run a transactional workload on. The myth is that it's the most expensive and it's just not true, which is again, why all these large businesses have stayed with us and continue to invest with us. To your point, that's an interesting perspective that all banks were 100% of global Fortune 100. And look, I've worked with a lot of banks. It's something I do on a regular basis. And you're right, they're the most cost-minded companies out there. So obviously they have made the deduction that, hey, look, this is the best, uh, the least expensive path that we could go, best bang for the buck. 
Why is there that myth out there then? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. I mean, you know, there's one dynamic that's always there and it's been there through the decades. It's called the competition. And if the competition sees that you have these wonderful customers that love your technology and run their core businesses on you, they want a piece of that. Your competitors do, whether it's, you know, it was the mini computers or it was the client server. Now it's the cloud, right? They want a piece of the action. And so most of the noise that's in the marketplace is from competitors kind of angling things their way. The truth of the matter is when we go and work hand in hand with a client and have to put it put all the numbers in a spreadsheet, the math doesn't lie. The math is clear that the mainframe is the most cost effective if you have a large critical workload and you need to keep it secure. If you don't care about security, hey, don't run it on a mainframe. But if you care about security, you shouldn't run anywhere but a mainframe. Just one point about that. I know that privacy is a growing concern around the world with all the data breaches and things that unscrupulous companies are doing with our personal data. And I tell you, you can have security without privacy, but you can't have privacy without security. And I think that's really um, where the mainframe is going to be leveraged in the future, because we can keep your data encrypted, keep it secure, and manage the privacy of it. But the question I often get is, hey, yeah, but I'm an open source company and I don't know if I could consider a mainframe because we're really, really pushing open source out or we're heading yep. in that direction. What's your response? My response is, well, you definitely should check out Linux One. We've been running Linux on the mainframe on Z for more than 20 years. The Linux One systems only run Linux. They don't run the operating systems like ZOS, ZVM, et cetera. They run Linux, right? They run KVM. And we have clients around the world that have bought Linux One systems and only run open source stack. There's a couple Linux ones in the Tencent cloud in China because China's largest insurance company, PICC, wanted to have cloud backup for their on-premises uh, Linux One systems. That's running a total open source stack that's, that was built on KVM put together by Tencent, right? The Tencent stack. I can look at fintechs again and other startups, and I can look at a lot of larger businesses around the world that are running pure open source stacks on the mainframe. They do it because performance, reliability, scalability, and security. One quick antidote, um, we've taken a few open source databases and we've run them on the mainframe. And we then go back to the people who support those open source databases and show them what their databases can do on a mainframe. Because normally they would never expect that they could scale so high or on an x86 system, you have to shard your data, right? If you really want to have a big database, not on a mainframe, you can scale it up. The open source world is there and we have plenty of clients that that's all that they run. But Ross, I have a mandate to move to the cloud. I got to get off mainframe. I got to move to cloud. What most clients are doing is the, some are being driven by their, by their senior management and their senior management is kind of blind to cost that they're incurring by doing this. When we talk to clients, what mostly we do is first, we API enable their mainframe so that as they move applications to the cloud that are consumer facing, which makes sense, they can easily reach back and hit the transactions and hit the databases that are on the mainframe. So most clients today that have mainframes have API enabled them so that they can communicate whether it's in uh, internal clouds 
or with external public clouds or multiple clouds. They do it through APIs. The next thing that we work with our clients is to help them decide, well, if what you really want to do is you don't want to have a data center anymore, you don't want to have the capital and all that, well, you move your mainframe into a colo and again, connect it to the cloud, uh, the public cloud. And then the final step I would say is, again, we have mainframes in the IBM cloud. Today, they run Linux workloads. They run blockchain workloads and they run other Linux-based workloads. So we do not have ZOS in the IBM cloud and I don't know if we will. I would say most clients, you know, we connect them to the cloud and we use the hybrid multi-cloud infrastructure tools like OpenShift, like Ansible and other things to be part of their cloud fabric. One of my questions, Red Hat on mainframe, Z mainframe. Done, ready, go. You know, we've had Red Hat mainframe for close to 20 years. OpenShift is available now on Linux on Z. Uh, Ansible is available, of course, that whole stack is. But the cool thing for me is what we've done is you can now, via Kubernetes and OpenShift, you can take Linux containers and you can seamlessly move that, have that workflow and run in address spaces in ZOS. And you can control your automation for ZOS now with Ansible. So if you're going to, you know, we say we're going with Ansible for automation across all clouds, all architectures in my enterprise, you know, ZOS is a full player there now, and, and all of that, that software is available today, and we have clients that are well underway in implementing it. What does Z not do well? I would say if you want to run games that need, you know, GPU acceleration, probably not good at all. If your games don't need GPUs, you know, for graphics, et cetera, then they still fly if they're running Java. But, but anything to do with graphical acceleration would not be good. You know, and I would say that while you could run a hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Docker containers on a system, I'm not sure if you'd want to run a whole bunch of little workloads. I mean, you can, but I'm not sure if you'd want to. You know, types of workloads that will run on the mainframe, it's just that you may choose that that's not the place that you want to. Again, things that have to do with UIs uh, and UXs, that's probably not the place to run them. Look, we released Z15. How's it doing? Uh, Z15 has had a great start. Can't talk about first quarter because we're still in, in blackout. You know, fourth quarter, uh, 19 was a great launch quarter. Sales all over the world, you know, it's uh, been publicly reported. We based Z15 is, of course, the newest generation is always faster, right? But just forget about speeds and feeds for a second. The first of the three key pillars of Z15 is around cloud native development. So that has really been a hit with our clients. The second thing was about something we call encryption everywhere. We have crypto encryption processors, accelerators built into the microprocessor. We can encrypt gigabytes and gigabytes a second of data without any performance hit to these systems. So why would you wanna do that? Well, if you actually cared about the security of your data, if you, like banks do, we can basically encrypt all data, and whether it's at rest or on the fly. And so what encryption everywhere does now is we can encrypt the data when it's on Z, and now we have some new technology called the data passport technology that allows you that if the data moves off the Z platform within your enterprise behind the firewall, or even uh, in the future when it moves outside the firewall, the crypto keys that you maintain in the trust authority on your mainframe still control that data. So if you want to revoke access to it, even after it's been moved outside the firewall, you can do that. And then the third thing we call instant recovery because everybody wants their systems up 24 seven. And for those of you that don't know, 
Systems do need maintenance, scheduled maintenance for software, hardware, et cetera. The Z can keep your applications up 24 seven. We do it by running clustered and we take nodes down and bring them back. And this instant recovery just really cuts the time to do like software maintenance in half now. People that run data centers uh, really love that. So cloud native development, encryption everywhere, and instant recovery were the three key selling points of the Z15 and those are absolutely resonating around the world. I have a company and I have a partner. The partner I'm sharing data with, they take the data, they take it outside of the firewall, uh, all good, they're using it, we're using it. They get bought out, I don't know what happens. You're telling me at any given time, I could say, all right, done, you don't get access to that data anymore, even though it's outside that firewall. Yes, that's, that's actually right. The data is wrappered. When they access the data in order to open it up and look at it, they actually have to make a round trip back to the trust authority to make sure that they can open it. And if you have revoked their access or even partially revoked some of the fields that are in there, some of the fields, we've got field level granularity control that we can revoke that so they can't see it. So that's one of the cool things about this. And it also has, a, you know, helps with audit trail and compliance by some of the, uh, again, the software breadcrumbs and, and trail that's left there. So it's pretty powerful. And again, this is brand new technology. We just GA'd it about a week ago. And so it's just getting out there into our customers' hands. We did a controlled beta for three months just to make sure that we were getting things right. And so I think this year is the year of data privacy passports and where we start to see people really leverage this again to protect their corporate jewels, their crown jewels, their data. COVID-19. Has the current pandemic, I mean, what kind of impact has it had on the business that you could talk to? Yeah, one of the interesting things is as terrible as this has been from a human point of view, it's been just as devastating on many industries, as you know. But a lot of the industries had tremendous spikes in their transactions. Think of all the churn that's going on with the airlines right now with canceled tickets and refunds and all that. Banks and market, well, market volatility and that then driving transactions with banks. So we've actually had to turn on capacity for a number of clients around the world. And that can all be done remotely without ever touching the system. We can turn more capacity on so that they can continue to scale and handle, again, unprecedented spikes in workloads. And one of the things that people don't realize is that the mainframe really was a cloud before that term was ever known, starting with virtualization, you know, four decades ago. And so these systems can breathe in and breathe out. And so if you need to expand them for a while so they can handle more transactions, uh, we can do that. And then we can actually then take away some of that processing power if the need uh, and therefore the desire to pay for it uh, isn't needed. And all that worked really well. And again, this wasn't one industry and it wasn't one country. Um, we had to do this for a number, uh, especially of financial institutions and some of the, the travel related industry uh, to help them survive in the last two months. Thank you for that. Anything that we should have stated on Z that you'd like to, to close out with? Anything that we might have missed? Anything our listeners should be aware of? Well, we talked about a lot here, but I guess the one thing that I would uh, reinforce is that, you know, the modern DevOps experience, which is something that application developers look for using Git and using VS or whatever their, their, their editors and their source code management tools of choice are, can be used with, uh, with and on the mainframe now. It can be used not just for Linux uh, workloads, but also for ZOS. And I don't think a lot of people realize that, you know, the 
magazines publish pictures of mainframes, they're usually black and white images with spinning tape drives in the background from the 70s, right? And they don't, they're not really taking pictures of what today's mainframe looks like or what the interfaces are. And again, the interfaces to me are the key things. And that would be, again, the modern open source DevOps based platforms that, that are out there. And so the one thing I want to harp on, and you mentioned legacy is, you know, legacy is only in the applications. And again, you want to develop modern applications, you can do it on the mainframe and they're going to run better there and more secure than anywhere else in the world. You know, the funny thing is my experience in the mainframe, particularly on the DB2 side, I'm in the database business and you cannot be down for any reason. But I will still say on the distributed side, and I've been in the database business for over 20 years, on the distributed side, like something could happen or you could do this, do that. And it's, you know, seen like, okay, we got to fix it. We got to bring, it just never happens on Z. And if it does, (laughs) by God, it's a major issue. I mean, the, the world's stopping. It stops rotating at that point in time because you, you just do not go down with the mainframe. So I'll give you that prop, that's fantastic. Hey, I wanna play a quick game, get to know Ross Mori here. It's a game we call Would You Rather? You gotta pick one or the other. Right? Okay. All right, you ready? Be quick. All right, you got two degrees where you may you have more, maybe more, but math or marketing? Math. Yeah. Math, all right. Give me one bullet as to why and then we'll move on quickly. Well, because math uh, just follows logic all the time. And for me, marketing sometimes doesn't follow the logic that I see. (laughs) Very good. Hardware or software? Uh, Software, because that's where I come from. I'm a a coder from way back when. And it just, uh, the freedom of being able to code and the fun of coding has always stuck with me. Sales or development? Development for sure. I, I love uh, sales is great being with clients and all that. But what really turns me on every day is when I get to go work with uh, the research team and the development team for Z. All right. French food or American food? I would have to say French food. I wasn't a fan when I went. And after the first couple of weeks, I actually thought I was going to die because things were so rich. Then I came to appreciate good bread and good cheese and well-cooked food and wine, of course. So I would have to say French. Well, I, I've had the best pork chop that I've ever had in my life in France. It was unbelievable. I want to go. I honestly want to go there just to eat that pork chop. That's how good it was. <laughs> right. uh, so let me ask you this. I know you manage a ton of people. Here's what I would ask you. What is something that most people just don't know about you. All those people that you manage, you manage them for quite a while. What do they, you know, a unique, funny, whatever thing that they don't know about you? (laughs) Well, most people don't know what my favorite hobby is. And uh, that's riding dirt bikes. I've ridden dirt bikes since I was five years old. I raced uh, when I was a teenager. Uh, motocross and in uh, cross-country racing. And today I actually am the owner of a very successful cross-country racing team. We actually won three national titles last year. So uh, I'm a big, I'm a dirt biker and most people don't know that. Wow. That's, that, that's why I asked the question. Now you still do this. I mean, today you'll get on a bike and you're gone. I still ride. I don't race anymore. The reflexes, the eyesight, the knees, everything just doesn't. uh, My brain still thinks I'm 18, but my body lets everybody know that I'm 60. But I still ride. I have adventure bikes. I have dual sport bikes. And I have actually have racing enduro bikes that every now and then I take out in the woods. Ross, you've been terrific. Thank you for being on the show. We learned a lot. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. Great talking to you today. Listeners, as always, I'll see you on the podcast. Be safe. See you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Oh.